In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four great beasts came up out of the sea, differing from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left of its feet. It was different from all the other beasts, where, where before it had had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language served him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one by that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good evening. Hope you're all well. Oh. Just finding my notes up here. I think we'll do it this way. All right, so we're back in Daniel 7. Feels like we haven't been in Daniel for a while. We had guest speaker, and then we had family camp. But now, we're back. So back in Daniel 7, hopefully you have your Bibles. This, um, this might be one of those nights where it would be good for you to, to see the text. We're going to be going a few different places and really drilling into a few different areas here. But this, this chapter, um, in reading over this chapter, this, this kind of chapter is exciting to me. I've always loved studying prophecy and we are definitely firmly with two feet into prophecy tonight. Um, 
I've always loved looking into uh, eschatology, end times, all those sort of things. Even when I was a kid, I was fascinated by it. First big study that I did, you know, big kid study, was um, trying to make sense of eschatology stuff and uh, still trying to make sense. Something that is definitely like a long sort of lifetime pursuit. Prophecy is difficult, and I just really love the way that we are <clears throat> taking it seriously. A few weeks ago when John was able to go through just the concept of apocalyptic literature, prophetic literature, um, the, I, don't, I don't know that it is really understood how unique that really is. Less than... I think the stat was either between four, oh, 2 and 4% of churches in America spend any time concerned with prophecy. And I, I say prophecy, a lot of times we'll, we'll deal with prophecy concerning the first advent of Jesus, Christmas, uh, some other things like that. But as far as getting into an understanding how prophecy works, what to look for, how to study it, very little time is given to that. And I think there's some reasons for that. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of look at that here in a second here. So if you, if you have your Bibles, hopefully you do, go ahead and turn to Hosea, Hosea chapter 11. And I want to use an, an example, a for instance. We're going to look at a prophecy. We're going to see how that, that rolls out. And while you're turning there, <clears throat> prophecy a lot of times, what we think it is, Thus says the Lord, something's going to happen. And then later we find the passage where it happens, and we're done, right? And I think sometimes that's, that's reinforced with certain things, and I think probably with the first advent of Jesus, we do that a lot. Here's a prophecy of Jesus coming, here's the fulfillment. Here's a prophecy, here's the fulfillment. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying that... That's not normal for prophecy. Prophecy is normally something a little bit different. It includes that, but that's not all it is. And I think that's sometimes what throws people off. So anyway, let, read this with me, not, not really out loud. I'll read it, okay? But in your minds, follow along. Verse 1, Hosea chapter 11. I guess I should probably turn there too. It's better than the screen. Hosea 11. Verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning sacrifices to idols. Okay, that seems pretty straightforward, right? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. This is actually, I've referenced it a couple of times. This is sometimes part of our sort of first advent teaching or conversation or something. Matthew chapter 2, let's look at verses 13 through 15. Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, 
and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. Okay? This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, let's go back to Hosea for a second. In reading that passage in Hosea, would you have ever thought, in reading that, this is about the Messiah? When the Messiah is a baby and will be taken to Egypt. Did anyone get that from Hosea chapter 11? Anybody? It's okay if you did. You don't have to feel embarrassed that you're brilliant. Did, did you? Yeah, oh, Stephanie, excellent. I would venture to say, we probably did not. Other than Stephanie, we were probably all not going to be those people who said, oh yes, in Hosea chapter 11, this is concerning the Messiah. And yet in Matthew, and Matthew actually does this a few different times, he'll all of a sudden, something will happen, and Matthew will just say, and this happened to fulfill, and he just pulls this verse out of the Old Testament and says, yeah, this fulfills this. And you go back to the context and say, what, what, what is that? It's been the focus of a lot of seminary classes to say, the gospel writers did that, can we do that? Can we just go and randomly just pull something and just say, this is a prophecy? And I think part of this is, this is the gospel writers being led by the Holy Spirit to acknowledge certain writings to say this is highlighting this. But I want to kind of expand that a little bit. Because I don't think any of us would have gone, well, this is a prophetic word from Hosea concerning the Messiah. So what are we supposed to do? Because I, I, would, I would venture to say there's actually quite a bit of prophecy that ends up feeling that way. I don't, I don't really see how that was pointing to that. And yet you see some of those things fulfilled. But I think it's because we have that other matrix that we talked about before. It says a thing, right? The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And then we go, oh, look, the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. One-to-one -one fulfillment, great, perfect. And I think we see that as the structure of prophecy instead of seeing what prophecy really is. Prophecy, <clears throat> it's a little different. The greater idea and concept of prophecy is different than that. It's not cut and dry. Okay, prophecy also takes a lot of time to understand. And I think for, for these two reasons, prophecy is not really focused on in the modern church, at least here in the United States. It's not cut and dry, and it takes a long time. Those two things mean we don't really focus on it. And I think it's to our detriment. And we'll, we'll see that a little bit more here. One reason I think it's to our detriment is because of what Jesus said concerning prophecy in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Again, Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. If you're an underliner, this is definitely one to underline. His disciples ask, hey, what's it going to be like at the end of the age? And Jesus starts out by making a statement. I'm going to paraphrase. 
But in verse 4 of chapter 24, he says, See to it that no one deceives you. And then he starts. Prophecy is going to be confusing. It's going to be difficult. It's an area of study that is not cut and dry, but it is very important. And now that we've set it up that way, I actually think most of us have enough knowledge just coming to church, listening, reading on our own. We actually have enough knowledge to begin delving into prophecy. And I think sometimes we, cut it, we, we sort of sell ourselves short, if that makes sense. And so we're going to kind of do that today. We're going to have like a mini workshop on, on prophecy using our passage in Daniel 7, connected with another passage here. But what we need to do is we actually, I think it would be helpful if we had a everyman up here with me. Sort of a representative, someone to come up and kind of work on that with me. And so... You can all talk amongst yourself for a second. Kind of say, who should we have sit up here to represent us? And after you've done that for a moment, I'm going to ask Scott to come up, and he'll be our everyman. You can give him a round of applause. Sure, we do that here. <clears throat> yeah, you have your own seat. This is the best seat in the house. Juice. No, don't. Not for now. Oh, you can do that if you want. Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, my name's Scott. There you go. It's Scott. Thanks, Scott. No, in, in, all, in all reality, no pressure on you, okay? I know that you're sitting up front with all the lights and all the things like that, but here's, here's, here's where, where we're going with this. I really do think we have enough general understanding to work through prophecy together. And so I'm going to ask you questions, and the whole point is to kind of just, just kind of feel that out, right? Just you can answer honestly, and if you really are like, I have no idea, you can kind of look out in the crowd, people can yell to you, and you can give me an answer, okay? Right. But I would, I would venture to say that a lot of the stuff we're going to go over, you probably could just kind of answer, right? It's not going to be crazy intense stuff, all right? You're going to be okay. It's going to be all right. No, don't, don't worry. Don't worry about it. Do you have a Bible? Do you have water? Do you want to go get those things? All right. Excellent. Well, a couple of things that we're going to look at here. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 7. So go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to look here. And, and again, you are our everyday man, okay? Now, I'm going to ask you a question, though, and, and I, don't, I don't want it to be a, something that you get embarrassed about, okay? But we encourage everybody to read the passage before we teach on it. And so, point of honesty, did you read Daniel 7? Oh, yeah. I, I did. You got to see? Good representative. Round of applause for this guy here. Did actually do the reading. And the reason why that's important is a lot of this is, like, it's not, <clears throat> when we go through a passage up here, it's not to surprise you with something. It really is to go into God's Word. If you have some familiarity with it, makes it a lot easier to have a conversation, and I hope you guys are having conversations around it, maybe not before, maybe after, different things that we see in Scripture. So, Daniel chapter 7, um, which we'll look at here in a second, but as sort of laying some groundwork here, prophecy is not cut and dry 
like we said, so the question would be, how do we approach it? So prophecy in general, what we want to look for, other than those real specific, like thus saith the Lord, this thing happens, and then we see the fulfillment, that does happen. But other than that, in prophecy, we're going to look for theme, we're going to look for patterns, we're going to look for symbols, and we look for repetition. And we're going to look for repetition. Uh, the, sort, of the, sort of the reason for that is, is that a lot of these pictures and symbols and things that we have, the reason that God is putting those out there is so that, first of all, the meaning can endure through generations. When it arrives, it's unmistakable. All right, so in John, the Gospel of John, to, to kind of highlight this, John the Baptist, he's doing his baptizer thing, and then he sees Jesus coming towards him. You ready? What does John call him? Behold, what? Hmm. Don't know, just Jesus? <laughs> I don't remember. He doesn't say Jesus, but he calls him something. Help him out. Son of God? Close. Lamb. See? Yes, the Lamb of God that takes with us in the world. Now, have you thought about that before? John doesn't say, it's Jesus Christ, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, and then goes into a, a whole explanation of atonement. He doesn't do that. He doesn't need to. All he has to say is, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and every person there with a Jewish background all of a sudden knew exactly what Jesus was there to do. At least they should have. Because the Lamb of God, what's the Lamb used for? Sacrifice. Oh, I should have asked you. It's used for sacrifice, right? When we say the Lamb of God, what, what is a very specific, not a ceremony, a very specific holiday that highlights the sacrificing of a lamb? There's a few of them, but, but what's, what's at least one of them? Passover. Passover. So we, you already have Passover. All of a sudden, all of these things, these meanings, these things all drop in. And you can see, this is the Lamb of God? That symbol, all of a sudden, brings all that prophetic weight and brings it to Jesus. Do you understand? That is the power of prophetic teaching. Where you can take an entire idea, concept, encapsulate it in just that phrase and then apply it to Jesus, and all of a sudden the meaning all makes sense. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're talking about. So Daniel chapter 7. Let's go ahead and read, or look at Daniel 7. I'm going to highlight a few things as we look at this. So I'm specifically going to look at the vision. We've talked about uh, symbols and different things. Let's look through this. There's some really weird things here, right? Right? You had to read it. So in, in chapter 7, looking at this, a couple things. Daniel sees a vision, and he sees the four winds of heaven stirred up by the great, stirring up the great sea. Okay? Four winds, the four winds of heaven. First of all, how can you see the four winds of heaven? So it's just something Daniel was able to, in the vision, perceive. Generally, that could be thought of as, think of it like points of a compass, from all directions, stirring up the great sea. Um, what's the point of the sea? Anyone 
have kind of an idea? This is, this is weird because sea, water, normally does have a lot of different prophetic meanings for this. The great sea, anyone have an idea what that might be? I'm sorry? Chaos. chaos. So normally you would say this, this is probably something like that chaos, like going back to Genesis, this chaos waters, except the designation of the great sea actually is geographical. So he's looking out and sees the great sea. What do you think from Israel's perspective would be the great sea? Mediterranean. And so there are a lot of people who think that he's actually having a view from Israel's perspective looking out on the great sea. And he sees four beasts, four beasts that show up. The first beast is a lion with eagle's wings, right? The second beast is a bear that's lopsided. It's raised up on one side. It's got three ribs hanging out of his mouth. The third beast is a leopard, again with wings, like a bird. doesn't say what, but like a bird. It has four heads. It says dominion was given to it. Okay. The last beast... How's the last beast described? The fourth beast. It's weird. I've seen a lot of different descriptions. It's the, it's the weird beast, the, the beastly beast, the uh, ferocious beast. But it is, it's not even given really specific sort of designations like the other ones are. They're pretty cut and dry. Oh, that's a leopard and it just looks funny. It, you know, it's got some extra wings. But this one... Not extra wings, leopard doesn't have wings, it has wings. Uh, this one is weird because of the description, right? It has iron teeth, it devours, it stamps, like stomps around. You can, I don't know what kind of, like a, like a bull would st- stamp around. That's what I kind of imagine. Um, and it was different. And then we go into a description of horns. So it's some sort of beastly beast with horns. But specifically it has how many horns? You, you, you read this. How many does it have? It's ten horns. Ten horns. Believe it or not, that's actually incredibly significant. It has ten horns. Uh, horns, and, and it's going to be described here and described later in other prophetic messages. Horns are often, um, they designate power, they designate authority. And so we'll get more into that a little later on. But it starts to talk about, you've got these ten horns, and then you've got... Another little horn, a cute one. You know, it's a tiny one. It kind of shows up, but it's not, it is not actually cute. It's not going to be cute. So looking at this, we've got this very weird thing. And then we focus in very much on this, on this one little detail, the horns. And it talks about the one horn and the one horn. Um, what does it say? It, it basically uproots three of the other horns. You've got this little horn here. And then there are eyes. There's like a lot of things happening with this little horn, which are really significant. We're going to get a lot more into that next week. And I'll tell you why. The reason is, is that it's way too easy to drill down into these details and completely miss the point of this prophetic vision. 
we'll miss it. If we, if we spend the time here, we're going to miss the whole major point. And so we're going to save some of the detail-y stuff for next week and make some of those bigger connections. What I actually want to do is go back to Daniel 2. Let's go back to Daniel 2 real quick. Here's where you get to shine. All right? Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we have a description. Just looking at the title, what is this about? This is about the statue. Remember the statue? It's many weeks ago. We talked about the statue. Verse 31, uh, it starts to talk about the statue. So Daniel says to the king, uh, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, and this image was mighty, exceeding in brightness, stood before you, and in its appearance it was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, the chest and arms of silver, the middle and the thighs were of bronze, and the legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you looked, a stone that was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the beast in the... I'm sorry, I've got beast on the mind. Uh, it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Now, we spent time on this passage. We talked about what those different things mean. So, every man, question. What does that, that statue, what does the statue in general represent? Power and idols. Yes, in general. Specifically, though, each one of those is something. So what is each one of those? He talks about it later in the chapter. Do you happen to know? Help him out. Empires. Ah, kingdoms and empires. So this, these represent pivotal ones. So these different empires, what's the head of gold represent? Do you remember? I don't remember. Babylon. Babylon, specifically in the vision, it's Babylon, but it also says that head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar. This is really important because what we start to see is in prophetic literature, when, it's, when it is talking about kingdoms, it sometimes can mean a kingdom and can mean a king. And it can kind of switch back and forth depending on the context. Does that make sense? So all these, all these little bits, I hope that we grab those and kind of place them somewhere because it's going to be important. We're starting to build this structure for how we look at prophetic literature. So we have the head of gold, Babylon. What, what came after Babylon? Do you remember? Rome? Medo-Persia, and then? <laughs> hey, Matt. Medo-Persia, and then we've got Greece, and then after Greece we have? Rome. Rome. Great Rome, right? And, and they, they, the metal sort of indicates what kind of kingdom it is, right? Head of gold, Babylon is this pinnacle, the silver, in the, the chest and the arms is Medo-Persia. Why two arms? A lot of people say that's because it's the Medes and the Persians, but that's inferred. Um, the, the belly and the thighs, it's a bronze. Bronze is very powerful. Um, oftentimes it's uh, connected with judgment and prophecy and different things. It's not clearly indicated that that's why it's bronze. But there you go, gold, silver, bronze. What does that sound like? 
I'm not sure. The Olympics, right? Gold is first, then second, then third. We still do that today. It represents that for us even, right? Gold, silver, bronze. Iron, what's iron good for? Building. Building, it is. You usually will use iron because you want it to be what? Strong. Strong, we even make steel out of iron. But the big thing with these different kingdoms, iron is connected with smashing, like the Hulk. It's good for smashing, it destroys. And that was sort of the point of that kingdom. So when we look at Daniel 2, what we're starting to see is we kind of have a pattern. Now, if you compare chapter 2 with chapter 7, you have three beasts and then a fourth crazy beast, right? It, with the statue, you've got kingdoms. You've got kingdoms that are in succession. And then that fourth kingdom, it's made of iron, but it also has what? Yes, he said it. I heard him. It also has clay. So it's, it's iron, but also then at the toes. So when it gets all the way to the end, it's iron mixed with clay. Okay? How many toes are on most people's feet? Five on each foot, right? Which is how many? Oh, ten. 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 So a lot of people will make a big point out of ten toes. However, in the passage, it doesn't. It doesn't actually indicate that if there's ten. Specifically, we just infer that. In chapter 7, how many horns are there? It turns out to be eight, actually, once the three pop out. Oh, you're tricky. Look at you. Right, so you have ten minus three plus one. You did, you did that. Um, yes, you have... You have that. So what we're seeing is there's a pattern. There's a pattern given. In chapter 2, we spent some time going through that in the different kingdoms. What we see is if you take the iron and the feet of iron as being the fourth kingdom, by the time you get to the end of the Roman Empire, is it strong or is it weak? At the end, it's weak. At the end, it's weak. Now, when we look at the fourth empire or I should say the fourth beast in chapter 7, what do we see? Is it strong or is it weak? It's strong, but the horn seems weak. Uh, so then there's particular things with the horns, but the, but the beast itself is described as strong. So what we see here is we see a pattern, and we see a pattern that is changed and supplanted. So... What we see here is as we start to compare, we can draw some other comparisons between chapter 2 and chapter 7. This is a progression of kingdoms. Okay, so in the statute, it's very clear it's a progression. And in history, it's a progression. Is that super clear in chapter 7? We see Daniel going, I saw a beast, and then behold another beast, and then behold a beast, and then I saw a crazy beast. Could it be succession? Sure. Sure. It's just not as cut and dry as it is with the statue, right? But you see the pattern. You see the pattern there. If we look at Daniel chapter 7, if we look at verses uh, 17 and 18. 17, are you doing okay up here? Yeah. All right. All the answers are here. 
right. In the scripture. You nailed it. That's why, that's why I have you up here. Verses 17, and we're, we're just really going to go over this in the interpretation. It says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. So if you want it encapsulated, that's what this vision is about. There are four kings that are coming out of the earth, but what you have as the actual climax of this is the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom. That is what this vision is about. Too often we go to this chapter and we spend so much time on the beasts that we forget that the actual real culmination of this chapter is the coming of the kingdom. So in Daniel chapter 2, what happens to the statue? It falls and gets blown away in the wind like Jeff. What specifically destroys the statue? A rock. A rock. A rock that's not cut by human hands destroys, it hits the feet, and it's destroyed. I think even when we went through Daniel 2, there's this idea that this rock, and it even says in in Daniel 2, this rock becomes what? A huge... I don't remember. It grows. The rock becomes... Oh, a mountain. Mountain. Becomes a big mountain, and it fills the whole earth, right? The point of... Daniel 2, the culmination of that was this rock smashes that succession of kingdoms and it grows to fill the earth. I think you could probably directly apply that to the end of the Roman Empire. Even secular scholars, if you talk long enough about the fall of Rome, will eventually bring up as one of the things that caused the fall of Rome was the growth of the church the church actually started to pull apart at the glue of the Roman Empire. And when did Rome fall? There's so many different dates you could pull out. But pretty much by 500 AD, it was gone. About 100 years after it had that division between East and West. And so what you see happening with the Roman Empire was there, you even had the, the Eastern Empire like basically marrying someone and like trying to put them in as empire, emperor and it just wouldn't work. And they, just, they kept trying to do all these things to keep it up. And eventually it just fell apart. Civil wars, it broke off into these different groupings and stuff. It's very interesting to look at if you like history. But basically it just kind of fell apart. There was no big kingdom that showed up and just took over. Even the Visigoths that came in, and the Huns, and all these other groups, they came in and maybe took over part, but they didn't come and conquer the whole thing. And so it was iron and clay. It wasn't quite strong, and it it was destroyed by this rock. Now, look at Daniel chapter 7. Is that what we see? That beast looks very different but we still see the pattern. And in fact, in, in chapter 7, what we'll start to see is this fourth kingdom, the last kingdom, is give, there's a lot of description about that last kingdom, what it is, what it does, how it's organized. So if we're to put the, all the structure kind of together, what we see in these prophetic visions is we see a pattern. The pattern is you have this progression of kingdoms or empires, In Daniel 7, it may be both the progression of empires or also at the end, there's four empires. The reason we'd say that is 
uh, in part of this, it says that the beastly beast is destroyed and the other three still get to live for a while without authority. So it looks like it might be indicating both. Again, weird prophecy, right? It can talk about something that for us is in the past and something in the future. That's the strength and the power of symbols and themes and repetition. So what you see in Daniel 2 is a weak and divided kingdom at the end, or you see a ferocious, strong one at the end. So what you might actually have, because this all goes back to the garden, right? You have the plan of God. And who opposes the plan of God? I hope you get this one. Jesus? No. He's the one to do it, correct. So he's the one who opposes Jesus, though. I mean, Satan? Yes, it's a Sunday school answer. It's, it's either Jesus or Satan, and then you get more specific. So you, you could say both. But that's what you have. You have Jesus, and you have the opposer. You have the adversary. And that's the setup from the very beginning. That, that's all we're really looking at. We complicate it. We make it bigger. We make a big stroke. But it really does come down to those who are aligned with Yahweh, with Jesus, and those who are aligned with the rebellers, those who are against. And it really doesn't have to be much more complicated than that. And in fact, what I want to go back to is to see how that actually culminates. Look at chapter 9, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 7, verse 9. Looking at verse 9, we see when you've got the horns and they're doing things and the little horn is supplanting the three and there's chaos and all this kind of stuff and the strong beast is doing what it does, what's happening in heaven? Oh, yeah, they're just setting up court. They're setting up thrones. Verse 9, the thrones were placed. The Ancient of, day, of Days took his seat, the head seat. His clothing was white as wool, hair on his head like pure wool. Sorry, white as snow, and hair was pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels were burning fire. That's supposed to draw our mind back to Ezekiel in the description of the mobile throne of God. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands and thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Pause for a second. Do you think any of them in heaven are intimidated by the ferocious beast? Do you think any of them actually really care about how mighty that beast looks? How scary that beast looks? How powerful is the, the inner politics between the horns? All those things. Do you think that they are concerned, overly concerned with that? My gosh, we've got to get these thrones set up so we can talk about this thing because we're just so scared. Do you think they're at all scared? There's zero indication that there's even any, any thought to that. Verse 10, it says, The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Thinking of it that way, it's an open, shut case. Open the books, confer in the books. That's pretty much it. But as that's going on, right, we, we, in verse 11, it goes, And I looked, and because of the sound of the great words from the horn that was speaking, so Daniel, all of a sudden, he's seen this, and he looks back down, and the horn is speaking. And I looked and the beast was killed, the body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. 
The rest of the beasts were given, uh, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Is there any concern about the beast? Are they quaking in their boots up in heaven? Are they biting their nails? Are they worried? No. The beastly beast is the worst that the kingdoms of earth can, can muster. All right? So with the statue, you have it just kind of fizzle out on the fourth beast. The fourth, or the fourth kingdom. The fourth kingdom represented by this beast is big, ferocious, terrible, scary from an earthly perspective. And yet it doesn't change anything that goes on in heaven. The point is, is that the dominion was given to the people of God. Done. If we don't see that as the ultimate goal of prophecy, we've missed the point. If we spend all the time dealing with all the details there and forget that piece, it's wasted time. We have to remember that the culmination of all these different things, it's all leading up to this culmination of history and this culmination of the plan of God, his redemption. Right? We have to remember that or we will completely lose focus. And this is where people, when they start to look at prophecy, they go, I can't do that, it's too scary. Why is it too scary? Maybe we need to be those people, those weird people that read the end first. Read the end first. We already know. There's no spoilers, okay? Read the end first and then go back and just recognize the Lord is giving us all of this information. Why? Why is it important? Why is it important to do this? Why why should we even deal with prophecy if it's so weird and if it's difficult and takes so much time, why should we do it? If it's difficult and takes time, is is it worth it? And I'd say, absolutely it is. So what is prophecy? What's the point? The point of prophecy, it's the battle plan for this epic war that we are a part of, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. I have a hard time not going to Tolkien as this general understanding. We want to be hobbits. We want to have our garden, hang out together, We want to have the calm. We want to have nice homes where we can hang out and and, and eat good food and just enjoy life and have parties underneath the big tree. And that's our life. That's what we want, right? Who doesn't want that, generally? But what's going on outside? Everything else is going on outside. We have to remember that we are a part of this war, whether we like it or not. We've been brought in, and do not mistake God's mercy and his grace for allowing us to be comfortable in our current, uh, in our current uh, situation, in our society. 
We are. Look around the world. They aren't. But don't mistake that for being an invitation to remain a hobbit. I'm sorry if you're offended by being called a hobbit. You shouldn't be, but... Prophecy is important because it gives us the understanding so that we are not deceived, that we might fight the good fight until the fight is not necessary anymore. That is the point. Could you do it without studying these things? Sure, but you run the risk. You run the risk of being deceived. You run the risk of not knowing what's happening, what's going on in all those different things. Scott, thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to finish up up here. Thank you. A round of applause for, for Scott. As our every man. Last, last verse, last uh, passage for us to look at. Matthew 24. We're going to go there again. It's such a, a great anchor for us when we're looking at prophecy. Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24, look at verse 9 through 14. This is Jesus talking. His disciples have asked him, what's it going to be like? And this whole chapter, these two chapters, 24 and 25, give a description of what's going to happen. Let's look at verse 9. We're kind of jumping into the middle, but it's okay. It says, then they would deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But... But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We're kind of given two sides of this. No doubt, by the time of this beastly beast, There will be tribulation. There will be difficulty. It will not be easy. And he gives some really specific descriptions of what that might look like. Tribulation. Right? People losing love for one another. People hating each other, betraying each other. I think that context also will exist in the church. For various reasons. I think that that specifically these things are going to be happening within the larger capital C church. Verse 13, though, but the one who endures to the end will be saved and the gospel will be preached throughout the entire world. Even with all of that difficulty, the purposes and plans of our king can't be thwarted. Why is there all this tribulation and calamity and, and things that take place and People betraying each other and hate and falling away. Why? I think a big part of it has to do with that question that seems to pop up all the time. If there is a good God, why is there suffering? 
And secondarily, if I'm following after a powerful and wonderful God, why am I experiencing tribulation? And I think that we have, I think, forgotten. We have forgotten that our Lord warned us, but also promised us, hey, this is going to happen. There's one phrase in here that I think we forget all the time, which is the world's going to hate you. Why is the world going to hate us? Because if we're preaching the kingdom, what we're saying is, this thing that's going on here, this kingdom that you're a part of on earth, there's another kingdom coming that's going to uproot it. It's going to be gone. And that's very threatening for a lot of people, especially if they're investing in this world. If you invest in this world, and then someone comes and tells you, hey, there's another kingdom that's coming that's going to rip all that out, that's offensive. That's threatening. But you know what? It's true. It's a warning. Evangelism really is a warning that has a remedy. Hey, just come to warn you. The kingdom of God is coming. But you know what? You can be a part of it. That's really the essence of evangelism. That's really the essence of the gospel of the kingdom. That's why prophecy exists. It exists for us to be able to see what's coming. We can prepare. Maybe that preparation, sometimes we say prepare. Prepare for what? Prepare for tribulation. We think we get a whole lot of beans, and I don't think that's really that's a good idea. Beans are good. But a lot of the preparation actually has to do with your own heart. It has to do with your heart, and it has to do with how you live your life. Because if we really want to make it to the end, it says here we need to endure. And that takes preparation. That takes a sustaining of each other. When one of us falls, we need to be there to pick up the other. Encouragement. The closer we get to the end, and again, we haven't talked about timetables, we haven't talked about dates, and none of those things. None of those things matter. Because it's still the same eternal gospel that is preached. And it's the same eternal gospel that we need to dedicate our lives to because it is the truth. There is a kingdom coming. If we endure it to the end, we might see it arrive. If not, we'll get to see it sooner. Right? There's, there is zero scenario for the people of God to lose. You realize that? There's not, there's not any instance in any of prophetic thought where we as believers lose. We either endure to the end and see it, or we die before and we go to glory. There is no way that we lose. And it's only the enemy that tricks us into thinking that looking at prophecy means being sad, being scared, being traumatized. That's not what it is. It's for us to see what's coming, to be able to prepare with each other for that, to be able to encourage each other that we might all endure to the end. That is the point. Next week, we're going to continue looking at Daniel chapter 7. We're going to get into some more details and see how it connects to other parts of prophecy. So we can then have conversations with a little bit more detail concerning those things because the point of Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus doesn't want us to be ignorant. You don't have to have a PhD in some of these things, but we should know enough to where we can encourage ourselves and our families and then encourage one another with the truth that we can see in scripture. So, there's some homework.
Are you ready? So we're going to look at Daniel 7 next week so you can read Daniel 7 again. But I would, I would love it if y'all could read two other chapters. Can you handle that? It's a whole week. Two chapters. You can even use an audio Bible. Someone else will read it to you. Revelation 13 and 14. Now, it's going to be weird because it's prophetic symbolism, right? Repeated themes, those types of things. So write, maybe write down some things that you see, some things that you say, like, that's super weird. I don't know what this means. Write all those things down. And then we'll get into some of those things next week. How are we doing? This is not the easiest type of passage to preach through and to come to the end and to say, okay, what do I take with me? What do I put in my pocket that I can use this week? So I'd say this. One, we in the West, just in general, just in North America, Europe, other various parts of the world, we have the gift of having God's word in our language. It's a tremendous gift. It really is. Not everyone does, but we do. We have the gift of having the information. God gives us his word that we might know it, that we might then be able to encourage each other and teach those who don't know. So as you read through the scripture, I would, I would challenge you to be those who are thankful that in, in this time, in this age, that we have completed word of God in our language that we are able to read through and to see what the responsibility is in that. I love, I, Scott, again, thank you for coming up here. Scott was able to answer a lot of those questions. And for the questions that he wasn't able to, someone else was. I don't think we all realize that together, we have a tremendous amount of knowledge, which means we have a tremendous responsibility. We have a responsibility to know it, to not be deceived, and be able to share that with others. And so the goal here is, how many of you had that conversation with someone where they go, man, the world is crazy. I wonder if it's the end of the world. In some way, I don't know. In some other, for anybody, my alone, you realize that most likely that person was guided to you by the Lord because you have the answer. People are open to talking about these things. And so it's a gift to be able to look at prophecy and to understand it. So, all that being said, if you could read those two chapters before next week, that would be great. You didn't know you were getting homework, but you got it. And I would challenge you to, to think through, what is your responsibility with this knowledge? As you read through these things and think through them, what, what, what should you be doing? Father, we are thankful that you have given to us your word. You've given us the spirit, Lord, that we might be able to know and to understand, have the understanding of your word illuminated to us, that we might be able to share the truth of the gospel. Lord, in times of difficulty, in times of lack, calamity, tribulation, Lord, I thank you that we are able to lean on you. We are able to, Lord, lean not on our own understanding, but on 
your revealed word. Lord, thank you for your prophetic word. Thank you for, Lord, the challenge that it is to us, Lord, to live and to endure. And I pray that for us in this room, Lord, I pray that we would be those who endure to the end. We thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're finishing up a little bit different.